Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Coming up today, we'll hear from music contributor Vaughn Phoenix with this month's edition of Punk Black to Go, and later, a celebration of Freedom Forest, planting trees and flowering shrubs to honor the legacy of Congressman John Lewis on what would have been his 82nd birthday. First, forging a path for civil rights in an earlier era. As part of an ongoing celebration of black history, earlier this month, Google had an animated doodle of Tony Stone on the top of its homepage. Marcinia Tony Stone was the first female professional baseball player. She played two seasons for the Negro League and retired in 1954. Stone was inducted into the Women's Sports Hall of Fame and the International Women's Sports Hall of Fame in 1993 before she passed away three years later. This remarkable athlete is the subject of the Alliance Theater's new production of Tony Stone, playing through February 27th. Director Tanache Kajizi-Bolden and actor Ketrin Spencer, who portrays Tony, Join me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having us, Lois. It's so great to be back and talking about plays that are happening in person. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having us. You are Tony Kedrin. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of legendary Negro League baseball players whom we know. Hank Aaron, Jackie Robinson, and Satchel Paige, to name a few. Why don't many people know about Tony Stone? You know, I think that over the years, you know, throughout history, being black, being a person of color, um, and then, of course, being a woman, you know, it's there are many ways in which uh, one can be oppressed and disenfranchised. And I think that, you know, historically, especially in this country, there's just been a history of 
um, of erasure and 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 forgetting and forgetting and so you know even today at the you know you watch documentaries about the Negro Leagues and you know you go to the museum of the Negro Leagues and you know the three the three women and Tony who was the first and the two other women who played in the Negro Leagues they aren't they aren't mentioned sadly and so I am so honored to be able to tell this story in particular but to be a part of this legacy of naming names that have been forgotten and erased. And yeah, we're, we're really excited to educate folks and to bring people along and to fill them with joy and discomfort and and questioning of self and others. And, and um, I'm just, I'm so honored and proud. And and uh, you won't forget her, you won't forget her. I, I promise you that we're really excited for folks to come out and, and, and learn all about Tony and what an incredible force that she was. Yeah. When did her love for baseball begin? So, Tony was a gifted athlete all around, but from a very, very young age, she was just fascinated, almost in a compulsive type of a way. She just loved baseball so much, you know. She grew up just hanging around the boys, going to the fields, trying to learn and soak up as much as possible. Even as a, as a teen, she would play with these with these men, with ad, with these adult men players, and she just got so good. And, you know, I think eventually, you know, she demanded to be heard, and, and, and she made her own space. But because she was such a brilliant athlete and such a great, just talent, people could not deny her. Mm-hmm. People could not deny her. Well, why did she want to pursue baseball as a career instead of softball? Hmm. You know, I can only speculate given, you know, the research that I've done and and myself being an athlete and I think that distinctions in sports because of gender, they can be very frustrating and incredibly limiting. And so, you know, even though there actually was a a women's baseball league, you know, that too was segregated and black women were not allowed to play. Um, I know that the rules are different and have been different from softball to baseball, but I think that I would imagine that baseball was what she loved. She didn't want to play anything else. The ball is smaller. It requires more um, acuity, more precision. Um, Playing with men demands more of you, I imagine, certainly, you know, back then. and, And she demanded to take the space where she wanted to occupy it. And she did. And for her, where she wanted to exist and where she did was in the world of baseball. Katrin, before you stepped into this role as Tony Stone, were you familiar with her story? I was not. I was not. You know, I wasn't always the hugest fan of baseball, if I'm being, you know, perfectly frank. I, I enjoyed going to games. So, you know, I was obviously familiar with the Negro Leagues and Hank and Jackie and, and even Satchel, actually. But you know, until that the play came out off Broadway in New York, I first heard about it. I, you know, and again, as an athlete, as an actor, the opportunity to, to play just this fierce, hungry, competitive black woman in any facet is just exciting to me. But when I heard specifically about this woman, I was bowled over. I was ecstatic about it. Well, we had the pleasure the excitement of seeing it in New York when it was first produced. And 
I had never heard of her. I don't think anyone in the theater was familiar with her, although there was a wonderful exhibit in the lobby of newspaper stories about her. And as we left the theater, we said to each other, why isn't she in history books? You mentioned this double whammy of racial discrimination and gender discrimination. What sort of sexist taunting did she face? Oof. I mean, I think it it gets as, you know, as explicit as you might imagine, and then as implicit and as minuscule, for lack of a better word, as, you know, the microaggressions that you face, that we face today. And, um, you know, you, you got her, she got it from all sides, whether that was, you know, physical aggression, you know, players working extra hard to try and take her down, different types of assault that have been, you know, alluded to and, and spoken about, you know, just being the hecklers, uh, again, both, you know, and I, I know that a lot of the players who, who crossed over into the majors, you know, they faced, you know, a lot of racial heckling as well. But again, when you're a woman, it's that the, the, the gender gap and, you know, you're dealing with toxic masculinity and male fragility, you know, and and men being intimidated and uh, I, I think and just deeply upset by their space being infringed upon by not only just a woman, but a woman who was so talented and better than so many. And so that to me is just further proof of just how brilliant and how steadfast she was in what she knew was her destiny and what she knew what she wanted to do because, you know, it's hard to follow your dreams, but to do it in the face of, you know, the opposition uh, of people who you expect to oppose you. And then it's even more painful when it comes from your own. And just to continue on that journey is just, uh, it's unbelievable. Tinashe, what is it about Tony's story that is especially exciting for you to direct? In some similar ways to Kedrin, I I didn't have as much of an affinity for the actual sport of baseball, mainly because I I didn't grow up in the States. And so I didn't have that. I didn't get get the, the opportunity to appreciate it as America's pastime. But where Tony and I really intersect is her vivid imagination and just a deep desire to be a storyteller. In any of the interviews that we have found, and and certainly in the book, the autobiography Curveball, that this play is based on by Martha Ackman, Tony is this illustrious storyteller. So, of course, for me, that is where my intersection came. And then the invitation inside of that was just to have no boundaries on how we interpreted her memories, how we travel through time and place, and how she brings with us this ability to feel, this opportunity to feel like we're part of that experience. And what I love about the way that Lydia has written this very sly and even magnificently off-center character, Lydia Diamond, the playwright, she just has this incredible way of falling into Tony's mind in a very abstract way, a non, non-traditional way, which really plays beautifully with the very thing that Kedrin was speaking about. Tony, she blazed a trail in 
a male dominated sport and world. And she laid a path for herself that nobody else was gonna help her lay. And so the story is done in an unconventional way. I've heard it oftentimes described as a memory play. But for me, I interpret it as a conjuring. And I say that because, again, just to, to make, to put a finer point to Kedrin's beautiful personal relations to this, to this show, these are buried narratives that we are resurrecting. And in that, it's not gentle. We are demanding the audience to lean in, to interrogate, why do we not know these stories? And therefore come in and be a part, be complicit in this resurrection which calls for ritual, which calls for explosive reactions, which calls for grace and spirituality. And in that is where that beautiful intersection of sports and theater exists. And to your point, the role of art, the power of art to reinstate these important moments in history. I learned about the Tulsa Race Massacre from a piece performed by the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater. I learned about Tony Stone from a play I saw. Do you feel a sense of responsibility that goes along with the entertainment aspect of presenting this show? I think that when we have the opportunity to collide entertainment with history telling, there is a chance for us as a community, as humanity, to advance ourselves. And so I see my role as being a, a wayfinder to offer a light or a lens on, on stories that hopefully dissolve some of the barriers that we have between each other and reveal the, the stories that we didn't realize that we might align with and find ourselves in a clearer way. And I think that there's a particular opportunity as storytellers when we are actually speaking about events that have happened and more importantly about events that have been forgotten, that have been rewritten, that have been changed and altered because the historian has decided is not fit into their narrative. And typically that narrative is white male presenting. And so I, especially after this war on uncertainty that we are still emerging from with this pandemic, with the racial reckoning that I hope is evergreen in terms of us all finding a higher, kinder, more loving self. I think that the role of the artist is even more important and central to helping us heal through the commonality of laughter, through the commonality of tears, through the commonality of saying, oh my gosh, that's my mother, that's my sister, that's my brother. And yet they look nothing like me. And yet they're in a time that I wasn't even around. But wow, now, now I can think about my neighbor. I can think about my mail delivery person somebody at the grocery store, I will see them. And maybe the spark that I felt watching Tony Stone, her humanity and grace and overcoming her obstacles, maybe that sort of pride is going to show up. And I might have a bit more patience with somebody else that I don't otherwise know. Bravo. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. 
I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with the actor Kedrin Spencer and director Tinashe Kajesu Bolden about the Alliance Theatre's production of Tony Stone. This play requires a tremendous amount of talent in its supporting cast. The set of Tony Stone is a scaled-down version of a baseball diamond, but to avoid hitting people in the audience and maybe each other, the actors can't hit and throw real baseballs. So how are their moves choreographed to appear as if they're really playing the game? Oh, that is one of the most exciting collisions of theater and sport, because we are able to create this effect and feeling of the speed and athletic precision of the game by using all of the theatrical elements that we have to our disposal. So of course we have the support of sound and what the crack of the bat might sound like and feel like as, it, as the ball thumps into the glove. But the gift that we truly, con I continue to thank God for is this, this powerful ensemble of nine actors who have been so willing to say yes to mine and our visionary choreographer, Del Howlett's ideas of, to the point that I'd made earlier, how do we collide conjuring with athleticism? And so the human form is used not just to, to, to tell the story of the practical playing of baseball, but the choreography also transports us through time and place, and they all become these different players in Tony's life. But in our preparation, very early in our process, we had the really great fortune to have a baseball consultant who happened to also be our lighting designer. Oh my. Uh, Tom Weaver. It was just this delightful, happy accident that happened. And not only that, he's an avid baseball player and researcher of the Negro Leagues and just brought with him just a wealth of information and knowledge and really helped train the actors to become athletes. Because my goal was that I wanted somebody who was a baseball player, who, who deeply understood the game and was not interested in theater, but came here for the game to be able to watch this show and believe in the authenticity of it. That was crucial to me that we were never playing at something. And so we created a really strong foundation with Tom and did these, these drills. He, he taught us um, shadow ball playing. We started with the actual bats and balls and throwing the actual things. And then we slowly started removing them so that we had that muscle memory inside of us and understood the different, the different moves that, that we needed. But then even inside of that work, Lois, what I found so compelling was the research and guidance that Tom gave us was the particular way that these Negro players played. Most of the white league players, they were really focused on hitting home runs. And so the way that the bat cracks that ball and sends it up so that they can get around the field was very different from Negro League players who wanted to hit the ball and keep it much closer on the infield so that they will only get to first base, second base, third base. And the reason for that is so that they could entertain. 
if they ran around the field, they wouldn't be able to do that which was being asked of them by their owners. And therein lies, again, another intersection between the sport and entertainer. These elite athletes were made to be entertainers. And while they also had to play at an exceptional level, they had to correct terms. They had to coon. It was minstrelsy. Sometimes they were sent out in grass skirts. They did dances. They played. They made fools of themselves. And yet they had to keep a keen eye on the game. And so we found a way to marry both the athletic precision in its practical form, but then also expand that visual vocabulary so that we could bring in the choreography and then use that even further for our, our transportations within our transitions. Mm. You touch upon something so important here. Would you speak further about how this play goes beyond baseball to also tell the story of civil rights and black life in America? Yes, certainly. I mean, it's a it's a very interesting proposal to ask us to wrestle with two things that bring us simultaneous pride, but also a lot of pain. America's pastime of baseball and then the Jim Crow era. And this story takes place right in that period of Jim Crow after the Second World War and before the major events of the civil rights movement. And during that period, so many of these athletes were unwitting trailblazers or unknowing trailblazers of the civil rights movement. The sheer fact that they were oftentimes driving through sundown towns, which many of us understand and know now, it means that if you are black, you need to be out of that town before the sun goes down. And yet these men and three of these women were traveling on buses and were playing in these towns that had to get out by a certain time. And so not only were they in the field focusing on a game, they then had to think about their own physical safety as soon as the protection of that diamond went away and they were just black people. And so as black people today and people of color today, we are still constantly under that, the white gaze and pressure of racist systems. But during that period, it was far more open, but still so painful and and terrifying. We were often humbled and brought to a very emotional point in our process as we talked about the lives of these players and what they had to go through to do that which they love. Mm. In 1950, Tony married a man, Aurelius Pessia Alberga. How did she balance her love life with her career? It's one of the relationships that we talk endlessly about. And we do ask that question, did she find the balance? Have any of us found that balance? You know, mm-hmm. it, is, it is such a relevant question of how you pursue that which you believe is your purpose, but still make space to live a life that is fulfilling and requires much of you. And the fact that mostly men don't get asked that question, which infuriates yeah. you know, <laughs> me. You know, I, I think... Tanache hit the nail on the head. It is very clear that this relationship was 
deep, deep, you know, deeply filled with love and uh, and care. And, you know, uh, Tony took care of Alberga until he passed and he was 103 years old. What is always interesting to me is even though the love that they shared, I have never doubted and it's very evident, you know, it's just, it's always interesting that there's always a little bit of, of dancing and performative nature that we have to do. You know, there are a lot of pictures, you know, like, this is mentioned in the play, but, you know, Tony was brought on even though she was talented, but definitely as a spectacle, right, to become a part of the show and to become part of the spectacle. While the love that she had for Alberga and the love they had for each other, I don't think is in question, in my mind. You know, you see these pictures of, I think there was a little bit of that relationship that was definitely exploited, perhaps, in terms of, you know, the pictures that were, you know, this is a woman who, while she did love this man, she was all about her sport. She was all all about playing and, and being acknowledged. And, you know, um, like she would get pictures of, of her, like in the uniform with like, you know, a veil on her head. You know, that's a line that we have in the play. And and there are pictures that, you know, of, of like Alberga taking care of her. So even though she was this pioneer and she, you know, was all about, she was very serious in, about her, her sport, even the way that she was referred to, you know, in the papers, you know, at times and, you know, girl athlete and this, and, you know, there, there are always ways in which we are slightly, you know, kind of these kind of backhanded remarks about first how we are seen, you know, and perceived. And I think as much as she could at the time, she did, I think that she she did have it all in the way that her love and her relationship with Alberga, I mean, that, that's another thing that's incredible about it, I think, for the time they were very forward thinking. You know, they, they, they thought very much ahead of what very specific and, in my opinion, you know, very narrow-minded gender roles were and are, you know, to some extent to this day. And so I think that they both made room in their worlds for each other to grow and love the way that they, they, uh, they needed to and the way that they could. Pretty remarkable for 70 years ago. Yes, yeah. absolutely. They were very much ahead of their time. This question is for both of you. After telling this story of resilience to audiences, how has Tony's story inspired you? I'm curious about which part of Tony will remain with you. So there is this story in Martha Ackman's autobiography that she talks about the curveball. And Tony kept talking about what it, what it means to be able to hit a curveball. And that the secret to hitting a curveball is that when you see it coming at you, you don't step away. You actually step right into it. You lean into what could be danger and you strike that oncoming opportunity. And so for me, the thing that I have taken away and has really been a personal provocation and my North Star is that Toni Stone was handed this one imperfect chance to live her dream. And she stepped into it. It's actually gonna make me very emotional because this is a woman in the 40s and 50s. I can't even imagine a black woman today playing in, the, in professional baseball. And she stepped into it and said, I'm gonna do this thing. So if she could do that, I can do anything. <laughs> Katrin? I think 
similarly to what Tanache was just saying is that this black woman in this time, she just, just this unflinching self-assuredness of what she was born to do, what she was put on this earth to do, and she didn't let anyone stop her. And what Tanache just said, this imperfect opportunity there are no perfect opportunities, but certainly in this circumstance, how could I ever doubt? Her stepping into her truth is something that I will always remember. And uh, it is remarkable. It is remarkable to be able to tell the story every single night. Actor Kedrin Spencer and director Tanache Kajese Bolden, Tony Stone, is on stage at the Alliance Theater through February 27th. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. It's time to check in with City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix. Vaughn is the president and co-founder of Atlanta's cultural and media phenomenon Punk Black, and he joins us monthly to highlight local artists of color performing in a variety of musical arenas, many of which break stereotypes and expectations. Here's Vaughn Phoenix with this month's edition of Punk Black To Go. Thanks, Lois. Greetings, my friends. I'm City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix, and this is Punk Black To Go. For the unfamiliar, Punk Black is a media network that features people of color in the rock, art, cosplay, and nerdlore communities. Each month, I'll be bringing you music from bands that I love from the Punk Black scene, so without further ado, here are some bands you need to listen to this month. First up, we have a new band actually, well, new to me anyway, called Nina Garbus. Really good band, really, really groovy sound, really, really dope vibes. I saw them at an amazing place last night called Black Sabbath Brewery in East Atlanta Village and instantly dug them. Really, really good sound, took me back to my garage band days, except for, you know, they were way better than we were back then, and of course not in a garage. I'm 100% sure they'll get your day rocking. So here's a sample of their song, Magnum. Magnum by Nina Garbus. They're on Instagram at Nina Garbus. That's N-I-N-A-G-A-R bus. Next up, we have Hijas de la Muerte. Now, Hijas de la Muerte is one of those bands that you fall in love with at first sight, or in your case, first listen. Dope aesthetic, dope vibes, dope music. They're like a love child of The Pillows and Alice in Chains. They somehow have created a perfect mixture of epicness and punk. I know I throw out a lot of guarantees here, but I guarantee you, that you're gonna fall in love with them at first listen. But don't take it from me. Here's a sample of their song, Cobra Man.
That was Cobra Man by Hedris de la Muerte. They're on Instagram at HDLM Official. That's HDLM Official. Last up, we have the Muslims. All right, here is a full disclaimer and a confession. I'm 100% a fanboy for the Muslims. I see their show anywhere, travel any distance, fight dragons, defeat minor demons, gather the Dragon Balls, even the ones on Namek to see their show. The Muslim sound really embodies punk in all of its aspects to me. Powerful lyrics, dope rhythms, high energy, fun, and the need to speak the overall truth, their own truth, and the truth of others. They recently signed Epitaph, and I've been super proud of them. I can't wait to see what they do next. But anyway, enough of me fanboying because you know, in Captain America fashion, I could do this all day. Here's a sample of their song, Call the Cops. Uh, hi, what, what's the state of the um, Yeah, seriously? Okay, look, there's a super suspicious guy. What's the race? Well... That was a sample of Call the Cops by the Muslims. They're on Instagram at the Muslims with a, with the Z sound at the end. That's the M-U-S-L-I-M-Z, the Muslims. Well, my friends, that's all I have for you this month. Thank you so much for listening. More information about the bands mentioned today is available on wabe.org slash citylights and, of course, punkblack.com. For WAB City Lights, I'm Vaughn Phoenix. Please be safe out there and be kind to each other. Music contributor Von Phoenix, president and co-founder of Atlanta's Punk Black. Coming up, a celebration of the birth anniversary of Congressman John Lewis. And we'll let you know how you can help Trees Atlanta honor his legacy. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1. W-A-B-E. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today would have been the 82nd birthday of civil rights leader and congressman John Lewis. Last year, hundreds of blooming plants and trees were planted in Freedom Park in his honor. Over 300 blooming trees, colorful flowering shrubs, and fields of daffodils 
Now lying John Lewis Freedom Parkway. This was part of a multi-year project, a collaboration with the Freedom Park Conservancy, Trees Atlanta, and the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. This Saturday, February 26th, Trees Atlanta is asking for volunteers in order to keep the flowering forest growing. Ahead of the first planting in 2021, I spoke with Dr. Kalinda Lee, the head of programs and exhibitions for the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, and Greg Levine, co-executive director of Trees Atlanta. Levine began with the history of the idea and collaboration. It really started working in Freedom Park for many years with the neighbors in Ponce Highland in the old Fourth Ward. Um, we had done some flower beds at the corner of, of Ponce de Leon and Freedom Parkway right by the plaza, the John Lewis Plaza, and another group of flowering beds at North Avenue in Freedom Parkway. And for many years, we had been doing the plantings, but uh, during COVID, there were a few neighbors in Ponce Highland that were con- did extra maintenance on these flowering beds. And when John Lewis passed, we thought we should really do more to kind of honor him and make it that much more of a, of a beautiful place. And the past board president in Ponce Highland, Beth McDonald, um, who's also on the Freedom Park Conservancy Board, and I just had some discussions around what could we do to further honor him and, you know, we talked about bigger flowering beds with lots of perennials and grasses. And then being one of the co-directors at Trees Atlanta, I thought we could commit more and do maybe flowering trees, which could be even larger and more impactful. And at the same time, Freedom Park Conservancy was working on a master plan. So really wanting to do something big for John Lewis and so much work had been done previously when the uh, Andre Dickens was looking at some way to honor uh, John Lewis as well. He's a city council person for the city of Atlanta. And one of the ways was to focus on renaming Freedom Parkway, John Lewis Freedom Parkway. Yeah, Kalinda, can you talk a bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it was really exciting to me when the partners from Trees Atlanta came to ask if the National Center for Civil and Human Rights would be interested in partnering in this project. Of course, we were excited about the opportunity to honor Congressman John Lewis for all of the work that he uh, put in as not only our congressperson, but as um, a civil rights icon, really. Um, But furthermore, he has a very special relationship with this particular neighborhood, um, this area of town. He was uh, pivotal Uh, as a supporter for the community in blocking what would have been a four-lane highway that would have, you know, decimated much of the land that is going to be utilized for this project um, and many of the homes in the area. And he, for years, was deeply engaged with this community in particular in really close relationship with its constituents. So all of that was really important to us to highlight and honor. And then we were also excited about the potential for this project to be 
um, as you said, a living legacy. Uh, one of the things that we know is that the past and the present are always connected and being able to remember what happened before and how it is still relevant and inspirational for our continued activism is a huge part of what we're focused on at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. And I, I can't think of any better way to be reminded of this and to be you know, in reflection and contemplation than by actually moving through this flowering forest um, in honor of the congressman. I understand you interviewed John Lewis before his passing. Can you tell us about that conversation? I did do an oral history with the congressman November 1st, 2019. I will tell you, in fact, that he was quite ill even when he agreed to do it. Um, but he was so generous with his time and his energy. Um, and because he had spoken so many times about his life's work, I, I wanted to be respectful of his generosity and focus in ways that were not um, fully explored in other interviews. And so we really honed in on his relationship to his Atlanta constituents and especially to Inman Park. One of the things that he talked about was the road fight. Another thing that he talked about a lot was how he was really actually inspired. You know, we think about him as an inspiration, but he was really inspired by the neighbors in these communities because um, he said they were able to to really kind of understand their power as ordinary people who had unique gifts and to lend themselves over a protracted period of time to work that was necessary, right, in order to protect their community and also to protect communities adjacent. So it was about their own interests, but also about operating in solidarity with other people who had a need. And he said that, you know, there was no question in his mind that he would support the effort. And I just have to throw in one more thing, um, you know, Lois and Greg, because I think it was so telling in terms of the way that he thought about his, his work and service. When we finished the interview, um, a group of school children happened to be coming into the building for a tour. And uh, a number of people had come, you know, our CEO and some other people had come downstairs to meet the congressman and greet him. And he broke away immediately and made a beeline for the kids Aww. because he really wanted to talk with them and make this connection about how, you know, the lessons of the past are ever with us. And he wanted to know what they were interested in and to talk to them and inspire them about how they could use their lives. One had the immediate impression that this was not a politician in search of a photo op. We have so many images of John Lewis engaged with children and young people, and you can just see the delight he took in passing on this idea of good trouble to them. Do any of the varieties of trees and plants correspond to Congressman Lewis's life or philosophy in any way. I was wondering if there is some added meaning in the names of certain plants. We haven't gotten there that, that far yet. There's some trees that are symbolic of peace. Really, our, our focus was to do as much of the blooming trees during around his birthday to really 
start that celebration and, you know, last through Black History Month and all, going all the way through to spring, really uh, extending the celebration of um, this great man's life. And I was going to just add to that, you know, one of the beautiful things always about working in partnership um, is how we can add our various areas of expertise together to create something, you know, particularly impactful for the community. So one of the things that the National Center for Civil and Human Rights has been doing with um, in the partnership is creating a timeline of the congressman's life so that we can really point out uh, watershed moments and events and specific things about his personality and attributes, interest. Um, of course, we have no idea how that historical content corresponds to trees, um, but our friends in the con uh, Conservancy and in trees uh, Atlanta certainly do. So working together, we'll also, you know, be digging more deeply into that question, as Greg was saying, and we'll be able to do this over a long period of time. So even though, you know, a limited number of people uh, will be able to participate in this planting, uh, there are going to be so many more opportunities to do that moving forward and hopefully to encounter you know, interpretive signage or maybe even some digital tools that will help you to understand how what you're encountering in this space is relevant to the, these lessons of history. So there, there will be something within the center that will explain the flowering tree forest? Actually, we are more focused in being a partner around what happens outdoors. So we recognize that our work is both inside the center and outside the center, right? Throughout our landscape, we do programs and projects, sometimes in schools and other places in the public. And so we're hoping that the interpretation that happens around this can be sort of in situ, so if you're if you're moving along the path of the flowering forest, you might be able to encounter something, whether that's on your phone um, through an app or something like that, or in physical signage. We're still you know working together to figure out what that means. Um, but we like very much the idea that this is happening in this public space because it's the ultimate kind of democratic space, right? And I mean, not, you know, party affiliation, of course, but the whole idea that this is a space that is accessible equally for everybody. I was going to say for all Atlantans, but even visitors, right? For anybody can, can come into this space with no entrance fee and participate in whatever is being offered there. Well, I wouldn't understate your knowledge of trees. You used quite the metaphor in an article recently that I read on the AP. You said, Congressman Lewis sowed seeds of hope and equality. Indeed he did. His commitment to nurturing the idea that we can all, no matter what kind of background we come from, no matter what access to power we seem to have or not to have, we can all make a difference um, that is meaningful with our lives. We can use our lives. Um, and that's a central message that we certainly embrace at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. We want to help everyone to find a way to uh, tap their own power 
to change the world. His life's work was this, as you say, this undaunted fight for civil and human rights without prejudice or exception. And I think that this living memorial is just one of the most exciting things I've heard yet. Greg, you envision the flowering forest tree tribute to John Lewis to take place annually, I understand. Any ideas how it will evolve in the next few years? We hope to do, at a minimum, a planting every year on his birthday. The Freedom Park Conservancy and the Parks Department's master plan for the, for the entire John Lewis Parkway. Eventually, the flowering trees will go all the way from Ponce de Leon down Freedom Parkway all the way to Boulevard at the Martin Luther King District and the Martin Luther King Sculpture. So it's a mile and a half of flowering trees. Um, and we're doing the first, you know, 20% this year. And it's, it's really exciting in that, you know, we're really focusing on this uh, explosion of flowering trees that bloom in February right around uh, John Lewis's birthday and having all this hordes of color. And really, this is a, a tribute that, like no other that we know of, so we really are celebrating uh, John Lewis's life over several months and a, and a mile and a half that connects, you know, these um, John Lewis to Martin Luther King District. Uh, there are other components that will be added there. You know, they're looking at doing meadow plantings to continue to add to the flowering forest. There, there's possibility of putting lake, a lake in there. And as Kalinda said, a lot of, you know, signage explains, you know, John Lewis's life and his um, contribution. But we actually think in the fall, there'll be the start of a daffodil planting and possibly a meadow planting as well. And we'll continue to do um, care for the forest uh, throughout the spring and summer season, watering it. And what Kalinda had said earlier, really what's really beautiful about this project, it's, you know, planting a tree, first First of all, it's, it's a contigu contiguous legacy. It's growing. Everything we do today will get bigger and more beautiful, um, just like uh, I think the contribution John Lewis had done in the past, and it will continue to grow as well. Uh, and people who really want to be part of of this legacy will get an opportunity to be part of it. Five years of installation is a, is a long time, but the, the care for this forest and the visitation and hopefully uh, um, everyone's effort will continue. And uh, again, the collaboration and partnership and people working together is really what I think all of this is about. You know, everybody wants to, to be part in honoring um, this great man. And, and we all believe, I think everyone believes that, you know, working together is the way to, to accomplish the most you can. And that's what these, all these partners, these nonprofit partners are doing, the city of Atlanta and in community that comes out and helps. Greg Levine, co-executive director of Trees Atlanta, and Dr. Kalinda Lee, the head of programs and exhibitions for the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Trees Atlanta is asking for volunteers to help with the flowering forest this Saturday, February 26th. You can sign up by going to treesatlanta.org slash calendar. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. 
Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the film Fannie Lou Hamer's America from the director, Joy Davenport. The documentary will kick off season 10 of the series America Reframed tomorrow at 9 p.m. on WABE-TV. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.